This program is brought to you by the Practicing Law Institute, a nonprofit learning organization dedicated to keeping attorneys, professionals, and accountants at the forefront of knowledge and expertise. Hello, Insecurities listeners, and welcome to this special SEC Speaks edition of the Insecurities Podcast. As always, I'm Chris Ekimoff, and I am joined by the wonky to my fresh, my co-host and my friend, <laughs> Kurt Wolf. It's good to be with you, Chris. I'm hoping today is the freshest of episodes. <laughs> it is. We've got a good one today. I'm excited to talk about the SEC Speaks in 2022. Last week, of course, we gave our listeners a quick teaser live from the floor of the annual SEC Speaks conference in Washington, D.C. Of course, we saw loads of former insecurities guests, all of whom were featured on a huge ad in the main conference room. That's Pretty- right pretty cool for our little podcast, yeah. Chris. And I think we actually managed to recruit a few more top shelf guests for upcoming episodes. We'll have to see if that works out. I was but. excited. There were a lot of, hey, why is he or she on that list and not me? So maybe exactly. we played a little bit into the ego of the average securities <laughs> attorney, but we're very excited for that coming up. And for any of our listeners who don't know, a quick overview of the SEC Speaks Conference. Each year, PLI and the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission collaborate to put together the SEC Speaks program, during which the SEC staff provides updates on the current initiatives and priorities, changing focuses, recent cases that have come together at the SEC. This year's program featured remarks by Chairman Gary Gensler, new SEC Commissioner Mark Ueda, SEC Enforcement Director Gurbir Grawal, and the Deputy Director Advocate for Small Business Capital Formation, as well as panel discussions by senior staff at the Divisions of Investment Management, Trading and Markets, Corporation Finance, Enforcement, Examinations, and Economic and Risk Analysis, or DIRA, as well as the offices of the Chief Accountant, the Office of the General Counsel, Municipal Securities, Credit Ratings, and International Affairs. Basically a buffet, Kurt, of any type of SEC discussion you would want to have. Yeah, absolutely. I noticed you almost stopped after Office of Chief Accountant. You were like, what more could we possibly do? I don't want to pick a favorite here, but I will. The Office (laughs) of the Chief Accountant. All right. OCA for the win. Today, as we mentioned, we're going to give you some of our top takeaways from the conference or some of the things we were chatting with folks at the conference about. Of course, if you want to learn more, if you missed the conference and you want to go back and catch a panel or two, or if you just need some CLE or Mm -hmm. CPE credit, and you want to get it through some interesting content, the entire SEC Speaks program is available on demand at pli.edu. Just go to pli.edu and search for SEC Speaks in the search bar. All right, Chris, let's get into it, man. Kicking things off, I think, high level here, what were some of your takeaways from the SEC Speaks? Kurt, I summarized this on Twitter, and I think I got a a smirk out of you when I said it. But to me, this SEC Speaks was like the 2022 Super Bowl commercial lineup. You saw all of the heavy hitters, all of the big players, and a ton of crypto. 
the Budweiser Clydesdales were there, you name it. But everywhere you looked, a panel was discussing <laughs> crypto, blockchain, fintech, DeFi. All of these things were kind of the obviously the hot button issues in the market that we've had many episodes on, as well as some esteemed guests to discuss them. But that continues to be a, a central focus of what the defense bar and what the markets at large are looking to the SEC to to discuss, whether it be through rulemakings, through guidance, or discussion of enforcement actions along the way. So. I saw a big crypto message out there. Kurt, what were some of your big takeaways? So I agree. I've got two for you. I will say my, my sort of show notes that I'm looking at here, Chris, mm -hmm. the number one thing says crypto, crypto, crypto. Yeah. So we're, <laughs> we're in agreement well, for once, for once. Yeah. I mean, of course, Chair Gensler sort of kicked it off that way on Thursday morning. His speech focused heavily on crypto. Enforcement Director Grewal's speech focused a lot on crypto. We're going to talk a little bit about the speeches in mm -hmm. a couple of minutes. But every single panel that I attended talked about crypto, even some of the ones you wouldn't think like trading in markets. That's right. For, the, for those of you wondering at home, trading in markets talked about crypto in the context of the custody rule. Another hot topic at the SEC right now. We've seen a couple enforcement actions lately. But in any event, it was a big deal. The thing that I thought was interesting was sort of talking to folks at some of the cocktail hours or just wandering around during breaks. Folks were saying, I can't believe how much the staff is focusing on this. That's Don't right. they have anything else to talk about? <laughs> <laughs> and then, of course, there were some who were saying, why are they talking about this at all? Because not even sure that the SEC is supposed to play in that space. We can save mm -hmm. that debate for another day. <laughs> but that, that I think, was, was the headline. The other thing that I'll mention, just something that, that I think is significant, I think is important, something that I noticed. At this SEC Speaks, there was, again, a continued focus on diversity at the SEC. Uh, there were fewer speeches uh, from commissioners. I think there were fewer speeches overall this year than we've seen in past years, but they included again this year remarks by the Office of Minority and Women Inclusion Chief Diversity Office, Pamela Gibbs. The first half of Director Garwal's remarks focused on diversity within the Division of Enforcement and why he thinks it's an important part of developing the staff to include people from all over. <laughs> he had a really good quote about this. He said, actually, it is an essential project of diversifying our workforce and creating an environment in which talented individuals are welcomed, encouraged, and given the opportunity to flourish. He talked about this not just in terms of you know the value of having you know a diversity of opinions or making sure that people are treated equitably and opportunities are available to everyone, but also in terms of the actual work that they do. He talked about how sometimes they will go out to meet with people who, who participate in the markets, people who may have been victims of a, some kind of fraud or an affinity fraud scheme. And he said, sometimes just because they are government officials, they're met with skepticism or disbelief from people out there. But when you do a better job of diversifying the staff, he thinks that you're sort of tearing down barriers and starting to remove some of that knee-jerk skeptical reaction that they mm -hmm. face. So I thought it was a really interesting um, part of his speech. I thought it was an important part of the program overall. And, and uh, you know, congratulations and thank you to the SEC and to the staff for continuing to, to put these issues front and center at SEC Speaks. Yeah. And one other takeaway, Kurt, it's just really kind of being in the room. You know, getting to to the networking event immediately after the the first day of the session and seeing 
250 people smiling and laughing together, you know, that hadn't been together for multiple years now that SEC Speaks has been delayed and, and done remotely. I think that, you know, as, as cheesy as we all get now about getting to see each other in person, taking that somewhat serious group of people who attend this conference and, and being able to have a laugh and, and really talk through a lot of these issues at the higher levels here over over a beer or a glass of wine, I think really did, did well for many folks there. And, and I know you and me as well. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. It was great to be in the building, in the room, see a bunch of old friends and then carry that through, you know, to just hanging out with folks in the evening and talking about some of the issues of the day and just getting back to being in person. So I really enjoyed it. Yeah. And, and the final takeaway for me was really the, the big issue that happened on Thursday night, which was the Buffalo Bills trouncing of the oh, no. L.A. Rams <laughs> defending Super Bowl championship reign was was decisively ended with much, much joy by everyone sitting at the bar alongside me, wondering why this guy was yelling at the TV when there was all this great networking to have. But we'll leave that to another another discussion as well. Yeah. All right. All right. Well, Chris, why don't we get into it? I know we want to talk about a couple of things today. One, we want to focus on on some of the speeches that we thought were, you know, particularly interesting or, or p- potentially impactful from a securities regulation enforcement standpoint. And then some key takeaways from a couple of the panels that that we listened in on. So you want to kick it off? Tell us a little bit about Gary Gensler's speech that opened the conference. No better place than to start at the beginning and to start at the top. Chair Gensler's remarks, boldly titled Kennedy and Crypto, referenced the statement made by the first chairman of the SEC, Joseph Kennedy, when he stated that, quote, no honest business need fear the SEC, end quote. Chief Gensler's brief history of the SEC and the associated regulations ended with his focus on crypto, saying, quote, the core principles from these statutes apply to all corners of the securities markets. That includes securities and intermediaries in the crypto market. Nothing about the crypto markets is incompatible with the securities laws. Investor protection is just as relevant, regardless of underlying technologies, end quote. The rest of his remarks related solely to that topic, crypto and the SEC's reasoning for why it holds oversight over that industry. The most talked about remark at the conference from Chair Gensler's speech followed his laundry list of SEC communiques regarding crypto, including the Dow report, the Munchie order, and other enforcement actions. Quote, not liking the message isn't the same thing as not receiving it, end quote. He is indicating here that just because crypto businesses don't agree with the SEC's posture on oversight doesn't mean it doesn't apply to them. Or, said another way, you've been warned. Chair Gensler is saying to take note of what the SEC has done in the past in the crypto space and heed the lessons of their message. Arguing the merits of oversight won't hold sway when meeting with the commission about a violation going forward. Kurt, is it too bold to say that Chair Gensler might be invoking the famed words of Ozymandias, look on my works, ye mighty and despair? (laughs) Aside from those dramatics, Chair Gensler focused on the outcomes of SEC regulation and enforcement in the crypto space tying back all of their efforts to that tripartite mission of the commission itself. His remarks focused almost exclusively on one of those partites, that of investor protection. And as we've discussed for almost two and a half years now, Kurt, the message always ends with an encouragement of consideration and seeking counsel from the SEC, or in the words of Chair Gensler, quote, work with us on compliance from the beginning. It is far less costly to do so from the outset, end quote. I know many found the chair's remarks to be bold, but also somewhat confusing. 
The unofficial Insecurities Podcast scion of complicated market hot takes, Mr. Matt Levine, responded in his daily newsletter to Chair Gensler's remarks with the following, quote, Gensler's posture seems like a massive bet against crypto ever being important. His message is basically, I should be the main regulator of crypto, and as the main regulator, my plan is to mostly ban it. And that's not abstractly an insane posture. That's more or less the view of the U.S. Drug Enforcement Agency takes towards cocaine, for instance. But most of the people who are jockeying to be the main regulator of crypto want to regulate a thriving ecosystem. They want it to be big, and they want to be in charge of it. Gensler wants to be in charge of it and have it be irrelevant and cumbersome and slow-moving, end quote. I know, Kurt, that's a lot, and it really covers a lot of different views of how the regulatory environment around crypto comes about. But what did you take away from the chair's comments, whether it relates to crypto or some of the other things he discussed? <laughs> that's interesting. I actually didn't read Levine's column that day. I love that <laughs> quote. I, I'm not sure that I agree with it. I am mm-hmm. quite certain Gary Gensler <laughs> would not agree with it. Although I do think he wants to you know, continue to expand the SEC's influence or oversight in this space. You know, look, the speech touched on a lot of things that he said before him saying that you can look to the Dow report or you Mm -hmm. can look to some of our enforcement actions to try to see the staff's view on what is or is not a security on what may or may not look like a compliant platform. That's not new. We've heard it many, many times. Mm -hmm. You know, what's interesting is it seems like every time he gets on a big stage like this in front of, you know, a room full of securities practitioners, he wants to talk about crypto. We've seen chairs use this moment to do a lot of different things. Sometimes it's a state of the union. Sometimes they want to announce a new policy. Sometimes it's a kind of a summary of what they think is going to be important going forward in the new year, because this tends to happen around around mm-hmm. the end of the fiscal year, of course, for the SEC. This was kind of, nope, I'm going to go back to the well. We're going to talk <laughs> yep. about crypto again, in case you didn't hear me this time for the folks in the back of the room. You know, it, look, it was a powerful speech. I think we all know where Chair Gensler is, where the commission is. But just on the point of you know some one-liners that I think got a lot of play, there was another one in there that I loved, and I've got to just read it here for our listeners. He said, these are not laundromat tokens. <laughs> Promoters are marketing, and the investing public is buying most of these tokens, touting or anticipating profits based on the efforts of others. I think that is his thesis of the crypto markets in a nutshell. People are buying them as investment opportunities, relying on the efforts of others. And if you can demonstrate that, well, you got a pretty good a pretty good case under Howie or Reeves. We're gonna I was going to say that that, that canon is pointed directly at Howie, right? For, yeah, for yeah. the uneducated here. For sure, for sure. Anyway, I think it's one that we're going to continue to talk about on the podcast. People are going to continue to go back and and look at it as they write client alerts and do other things. But I mean, look, Gary Gensler talking about crypto. I don't know. Is that mm-hmm. I don't know if that's anything new. More more of the same, especially <laughs> yeah. if you follow him on Twitter, you can find a lot of good chairman's hours when he does his video sets on that as yeah, well. Those are great. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Anyway. okay. so he was not the only person from the 10th floor at at SEC headquarters to give remarks this year. It's actually interesting. A lot of years we will get all five or all of the sitting commissioners Mm -hmm. to come over and give speeches. This year we only had two. Of course, we've been talking about Chair Gensler's speech. We also heard a speech from new commissioner Mark Ueda. This was his first big speech, I'll say. He's given remarks, I think, two 
two other times for committee meetings at the SEC. So you can, you know, Google the commissioner's remarks and find a couple things will ping. But this, I think, was the first big speech where yeah. he was trying to give listeners some kind of insight into you know, how he views his role as a commissioner, what he thinks ought to be the role of the SEC as rulemaker. So that was certainly interesting to hear from him. And I have to say, the, the speech was a little spicy, Chris. Yep. Look, you know, I read it again today and it was sort of how I remembered it, which was like, hmm, a little critical of some of the things that are going on at the SEC these past <laughs> few months. <laughs> so let's, let's break it down a little bit. I mean, I think the headline was Commissioner Ueda's speech was focused on rulemaking or, or really his philosophy on the SEC's role as rulemaker and as rulemaker and what he thinks the rulemaking process should look like. He said when he's thinking about a a proposed rulemaking or evaluating a proposed rulemaking, he's focusing on a few things. He talked about drawing a grid and on the grid, there is a square for effective and a square mm -hmm. for ineffective. There's a square for costly and a square for not so costly. And he's sort of trying to get the like the Goldilocks mix here, I think, That's in right. terms of rulemaking. You know, obviously, if something is ineffective and costly, well, that's not quite right. You know, <laughs> but I, I think if it's very effective and not costly, that is probably the Commissioner Ueda special. He's He's going to like that one. But, you know, interestingly, he talked a lot about uh, the burdens of imposing costly rules on regulated entities or firms. And, you know, he said, look, if, if what I see in front of me is a rule that I think has the potential to be very effective, but also very costly, it means we may not have appropriately calibrated the rule. We might need to go back and think about some of it. He talked about the value of, of having DIRA look at these rules and doing their economic analysis to figure out, you know, what might be some of the unintended consequences of a rulemaking. So for, for him, he's sort of thinking about it again on that kind of grid. Where does it fall on the effective and costly spectrum? He also talked, I think, more broadly just about his views on the role or the scope of not just the SEC, but other federal agencies. And I think he views them as having a somewhat narrower or more limited scope than perhaps some of his colleagues on, on the 10th floor. He didn't say it outright, yeah. but he, he implied that the commission has in the past been guilty of overstepping. He suggested, for example, that the federal securities laws are not the right tool to address, quote, societal concerns, end quote, in the absence of financial materiality. I think we could take a guess what he's talking about, right? Yeah. We've heard these complaints leveled at the climate risk disclosures rule and some of the other ESG related guidance or potential rulemaking that we see on the horizon. I'm guessing that's in the back of his head. I'm guessing that's not the only thing that he's thinking about because frankly, this, this concern about the role of federal agencies of the sort of administration state overstepping is something that I think we've been hearing increasingly over the last several years. So I think he's he's sort of picking up on that. One other theme from Commissioner Ueda's speech that I want to that I want to talk about. Actually, I've got two more. But the first is, you know, he talked about the commission using 
enforcement actions to announce new interpretations of rules or new rules. He's Kurt, what's, yeah. what's the shorthand phrase that people use for that? I can't remember if we've ever said it on this podcast. I was going to say, he actually said it. And I, and I sort of <laughs> joked with someone, regulation by enforcement is the answer. He, That's used, right. he used the phrase regulation by enforcement. He also referred to it as regulation through litigation, which was a new one for me. Mm. But I kind of laughed because regulation by enforcement used to be something that the defense bar would talk about or yeah. some regulated entities would talk about like over lunch and it was almost like saying Voldemort you know well you just said it Kurt I said it I said it I know I know but you know to hear the com- to hear a commissioner sort of That's say right. it on this stage was was interesting you know of of course his concern here aligns with his view of the SEC's rulemaking mandate he's saying look if what we're doing is announcing policy or new interpretations of rules through enforcement actions, what the commission essentially is doing is removing protections that are built into the rulemaking process. Mm -hmm. He says, this isn't the way we should do it. If what we want to do is put out new guidance or new interpretations, there is a process for that. And it is not through enforcement actions. So those were kind of the three of the things I wanted to hit on Uh, broadly. I mean, I think they sound like points that we have heard from GOP commissioners in the past, yep. you know, and not hugely surprising. Again, I think it was kind of a spicy first speech. Like, I'm, I'm interested to see what comes next. I, I will say one area he talked about where I think everybody would would agree or most people in, in the room would agree Um was he's not a fan of some of the shorter comment periods that yep. we've seen in the first couple of years of, of Gary Gensler's time as chair of the commission. He talked in particular about a recent one where they only gave 30 days. He talked about one where there was a shorter comment period and it happened to fall over the December holidays and the New Year's holiday. And he said, listen, like this, this just isn't what we should be about. We should be encouraging comments. We should be giving time for people to to lob in their thoughts so that we can get it right, so that we can calibrate that, you know, effectiveness versus costliness spectrum appropriately. So anyway, that was uh, Commissioner Ueda's speech, his, his first big one, as I said. I don't know if anything else jumped out at you, Chris, but I thought it was an interesting one. Yeah, I think it really lays the groundwork for what's hopefully a very successful and, and meaningful time as commissioner. I can see a lot of people arguing some of the points that he brought up if and when he ever strays out of that effective and not costly box, right? So leaning mm-hmm. on some of those semantics there, I think will be something that, you know, maybe doesn't haunt the commissioner, but something he has to keep in mind as he, you know, argues and, and votes in, in the coming years, just to be aligned with that. I don't think anyone would disagree what he said, right? No one's going to say that we should be stuffing comment periods between Thanksgiving and Christmas just so that things can get done. To me, this has all the hallmarks of, of someone who's relatively new to the commission very idealistic, very, you know, supportive, but, you know, somewhat critical or somewhat shaping the way that he'll be looking at the commission going forward. So I'm excited. I'm excited for this conversation we have next year, Kurt, to see if if the commissioner <laughs> held up his end of the bargain or if we've got a lot of ineffective and costly uh, regulations that have been rolled out in the coming months. Uh, you know, I would be excited to talk about it with him. So if anybody yeah, on the staff uh, is out there listening, give us, give us a as, call. As always, We'd love to have you on to talk the about floor, it. floor, right? <laughs> <laughs> Anytime. Absolutely. All right. One more speech we want to talk about. Chris, I think you're going to cover it, but I'll just kind of, you know, lay the foundation here. Of course, this was a speech or remarks by the director of enforcement, Gabir Grawal. You know, I'm going to focus on the second half of his speech. I mentioned already that he talked about sort of, you know, diversity within the, within the staff and how that impacts their work out in the investment community. The second half of his speech focused on what he called the, quote, digital elephant 
in the room. Don't think about the digital elephant, Kurt. Yeah, of course, we're we're going back to crypto naturally, right? (laughs) (laughs) Essentially, this part of his speech was pushing back on critics who he thinks seem, quote, upset because we're not giving crypto a pass from the application of well-established regulations and precedents. Again, in a sense, he if he's not channeling Chair Gensler, they are yeah. certainly singing from the same hymn book. But give us a couple uh, of your reactions to well, that, the director's that's speech. That's what I, I, I kind of wrote down what was happening. It was hand in glove, right? You've got this very well aligned mentality about the application of what we've got to this new and emerging area. And it's not, I don't think either Chair Gensler or or Director Gerwal were taking a, an unfair position. They're saying, look, these are the tools we have. We're going to do our best to apply them and consider new tools and, and ways to think about it in, in the future. And I think D- Director Grewal was very focused on the idea. He used the phrase a couple of times, you know, prosecuting or reviewing without fear or favor and actually referenced the fact that if they pulled back from these complex and, and kind of difficult issues that that in itself would be presenting, you know, an adjudication or, or a evaluation with fear and favor, right? You know, favoring those that are more complex and and fear of maybe being wrong or, or, or implementing a standard or an enforcement action that might might not take the right criticism. So again, he echoed a lot of what we talked about before with the application of the Howey and the Reeves tests, as well as the kind of the commission's focus on crypto. But to me, it really was just a reinforcement of where the enforcement division, I think, has been been going since he took over over a year ago now, and also where we think that they'll they'll be going in the future under Chair Gensler and as the crypto world continues to develop. Yeah, I I agree with that. You know, I actually noted this fear in favor language as well Mm -hmm. in my notes. It's it's interesting to me because they they really are, I think, working hard to to orchestrate their message. Right. If we think back to, I think, two summers ago, Commissioner Crenshaw gave remarks where she was talking about the philosophy of the SEC setting corporate penalties. And Mm -hmm. she was essentially calling on the commission to reassess the corporate penalties framework. In that speech, she talked a little bit about this concept of fear or favor. Like we should be, we should be setting penalties without fear or favor. When when Chair Gensler came on the scene a few months later, he picked up on that language too. And we've seen this fear or favor in at least one of his speeches that I that I remember. And this, I think, is the third time Director Grewal has used it. So they yeah. really are focusing on this concept that you know, look, n- nobody gets a pass. Yep. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter if you're, you know, a huge financial services firm on Wall Street or you are a crypto startup from Silicon Valley. We are going to apply the regulations appropriately and bring cases where we think the evidence supports them. And one of the statements he made towards the end of his speech really rings with me. And it kind of goes back to that idea, you know, that I caught on to earlier on in my career is even when you do nothing, you're doing something. Right. In in the way that the SEC may position themselves. And I'll read here from his speech, quote, restoring trust in the regulatory system and its institutions cannot start with us abandoning whole classes of investors by declaring our longstanding and well-established rules to be simply null and void for enforcement purposes. That would be unfair, unequitable and undemocratic, end quote. 
he's saying there, we can't just ignore this kind of difficult area because it wouldn't fit into kind of the mission of the SEC or really what everyone up on the stage is charged in doing, you know, and protecting investors, but also being equitable, being fair and, and applying the standards that they know have, have been applied in the past for better or for worse in the current environment. So that to me, I think was a good, you know, kind of hammer home of, listen, we're not just going to sit on our hands and do nothing because it's hard. We're going to do our best to apply things as best we can. Yep. I, I I completely agree with that. I actually think any director of enforcement would say that that's what they do, but I like that he's reinforcing the message. <laughs> yeah, and before we jump onto our panel discussion, Kurt, I just want to give a quick shout out to one of the younger offices at the SEC, the Office of the Advocate for Small Business Capital Formation. The comments from Mr. Sebastian Gomez Abero, the office's deputy director, really made waves when he was both thanking the inaugural director of the office, Martha Leg Miller, for her service, having recently departed the SEC, and his discussion of capital formation basically since the Jobs Act of 2012. His message was simple in that he hopes to make capital raising an open book exam and to give the market the ability to research and decide what options make the most sense for each individual firm, both now and into the future. And in doing so is announcing the uh, opening or, or the unveiling of the office's new capital raising hub. I can't think of a more techie name to, to call a website or, or a repository for educational materials of the hub. For anybody more interested in the Capital Raising Hub, they played actually at the, at the conference and is available online, a great three-minute video outlining all of the resources and the framework for this new initiative. Uh, you can check it out on the SEC's YouTube channel. That is not an error, Kurt. Yes, the SEC has a YouTube channel, <laughs> or you can just search Discover the Capital Raising Hub to learn more about Deputy Director Gomez Abero's remarks. Yeah, it was actually good. It was a cool little break in in the normal flow of the conference right. to have anything to have that's that video. not just a, an SEC yeah. staff person at a yeah. podium is a good thing at the conference. Yeah, and it was well produced. Anyway, I would check it out. It's three minutes of your day. Go check it out. Share it with somebody who who might need that resource. All right. So that's a good shout out, Chris. Thank you. But let's let's talk a little bit about a couple of the panels. No surprise to any of our listeners what we're going to focus on. Chris, of course, is going to talk about the division of investment. Ma nope, that's not uh, right. He's man. going for the accounting I panel. I got real nervous. My notes are wrong. Here, <laughs> and I'll talk a little bit about some of the things that, that caught my ear during the enforcement panel. Again, if there's another panel that you want to go back and listen to, the content's available, pli.edu. But Chris, tell us a little bit about the accounting panel. I don't know. You know, you think about the great trios in history, whether it be some of the batters on Murderer's Row for the Yankees or, or the mid-2000s Boston Celtics. <laughs> I don't know if they call themselves the big three, but we did have a big three up there for the accounting panel, and that is the big boss himself, Paul Munter, who serves as the acting chief accountant for the commission, as well as two of the division chief accountants, Lindsay McCord of Corp Finn and Jensen Wayne of Investment Management. I just want to run through a few of the things they talked about. Obviously, Kurt, you know I could go on for hours. Uh, Mr. Munter really started with kicking off the discussion with a level setting of all the things that matter to the accounting folks in the room related to the SEC. And it was really kind of four ideas that there should be strong accounting standards and that those standards can facilitate meaningful oversight for the SEC over the accounting function. While the SEC should always continue to seek ways of improvement in new rulemakings that they're considering 
and hold out the importance of ethics and independence for all accounting and audit firms under SEC supervision. Those four IDs really seem kind of elementary, but I think repeating that over and over again, it's, it's really a benefit to, to where the office of the chief accountant and all of the division chief accountants come from and the ways they're going. So three quick things about the accounting panel, really some things we've talked about in the past, non-GAAP metrics, independence, and restatements. Ms. McCord did a great job of walking through the commission's rationale and thinking in a very, very, and I'll say very again, Kurt, because I don't want you to fall asleep like you did during the panel, <laughs> very specific type of non-GAAP measurement used in the pharma industry. And Ms. McCord really ran through all of the counter arguments and considerations around this specific non-GAAP metric. It was a great discussion and really kind of struck me the thoughtfulness and the insightfulness that the, the staff attempts to put into all of its comment letters, all of its positions. And in this specific case, the issuer and the SEC came to an agreement about how that treatment should be done, a very specific adjustment in the non-GAAP metric when it's being compared to its GAAP counterpart needed to be adjusted to be sure that that was a meaningful non-GAAP representation. So two things from there, right? One, their, their thoughtfulness and their insight, but also the SEC is watching. Even that one line item in your non-GAAP adjustment, a waterfall might create something that a comment letter might get to. Regarding independence, and I know, Kurt, we talked a lot about this, uh, Mr. Munter provided another analysis of Section 201 of the Sarbanes-Oxley Act. Many accounting audit firms rely on, on what's present in that section, which we call the laundry list of services that are explicitly named as prohibited for a test clients. And many firms use that both as a guide and as a crutch to say, does this service fall into one of the elements of this laundry list? And if so, we cannot do it. But Mr. Muntner noted that just because a, a type of service is not expressly listed in Section 201C of the Sarbanes-Oxley Act, that does not just dissuade any issues with independence. You know, there needs to be other considerations around independence, the relationship with the client, the impact that those services may have beyond just their appearance on the list. So for those of you who need a refresher on Section 201, definitely take a look at that. But I think Mr. Muntner's thoughts on independence, you know, ring true with all the major accounting and audit firms out there uh, to be sure that we revisit those ideas and consider the, the whole relationship and the perception of that relationship in any evaluation of independence. And then finally, Mr. Wayne provided a growing area of concern on the restatement front, something that's really kind of fallen by the wayside in the past 10 or 15 years, discussing a recent matter in which an issuer merely updated the prior year results that were in the current year financials for comparisons purposes. That update was made to comply with guidance from a comment letter it had received from the commission instead of actually going back and restating and reissuing the prior year financials with that updated accounting treatment. My second favorite joke of the entire conference was one and Mr. Wayne said it's not okay to, quote, correct a big R restatement in the prior year with a little R restatement <laughs> in the current year. And people actually laughed. That was, a, that was yeah. a great line. But my favorite joke, maybe it wasn't a joke of the entire week, was when the panel ended with the setup this year was they had panelists from the SEC and then former commissioners or other eminents in the legal space acting as commentators for each of the panels. For the accounting panel, we had former SEC commissioner, Dr. Cynthia Glassman. Uh, she was kind of tossed the mic for her final thoughts and completely deadpan with no, no insight to, into these words at all. She said, quote, accounting is important. Get the accounting right. End quote. Now, I mean, me and the rest of the audience was kind of befuddled that such a complex idea could be boiled down to just seven words, Kurt. But I thought this might be a good opportunity for us to finally get that insecurities podcast tattoo we have always talked about. Accounting is important. Get the accounting right. Should we make some joint appointments together? 
Well, you know what? Why don't you go ahead and get yours? I just want to see it first. And okay, then, yeah, no, I'll, I'll go. Yeah, I'll lay it yeah, out. But yeah, so I'll the accounting follow. panel really, really revisited a lot of the issues, all joking aside, that they were dealing with in the markets today. And I think was was pretty great at illustrating what the the account, the chief accountants for the divisions do, and how they work together to ensure the commission is meeting its mission in representation to the markets. Yeah, I, so I'm not going to talk about the substance of the accounting panel. I think you covered it. But I do have a, a comment on the style of the accounting panel. And I've created a new acronym just for this. I think Get it's perfect for out. accounting. All right, this is, it's GAP, G-A-P-P, <laughs> Generally Accepted Panel Procedures. So I think you'll notice over time, the panels pretty much follow a very tried and true mm -hmm. procedure. It's like the person closest to the podium speaks it's for five ordinal, minutes yeah. and then the next person <laughs> speaks for five minutes and eventually someone will accidentally speak for nine minutes and oh. by the end, the last person speaks for 47 seconds. But what I like about Paul Munter and the accounting panel is that they they just go completely non-gap, completely not generally <laughs> accepted panel procedures. It's more of a conversation. They bounce back and forth. It he is. is like the MC, and I have to say, I think it works. It makes what could be a dry panel for some could of be. us yeah, much more be. interesting. So <laughs> thank you to to the accountants on the staff for for working hard to make it to make it interesting for us non-accountants in the room. Little did you know, Kurt, the accountants out there are the most creative of the bunch. <laughs> and I know some Kurt, more than others, but that's when they call me. You know, that's right. <laughs> So let's get let's get to the blocking and tackling here. And this was probably the most well-attended panel at 8.30 yeah. on Friday morning, and that being that from the Division of Enforcement. So, Kurt, lead us into what you took away from the panel, and I'm, I'm happy to do the same. Yeah, absolutely. So, of course, the panel opened with the Director of Enforcement's remarks. We've covered them. Not mm -hmm. going to talk about that. He quickly handed off to his deputy, Sanjay Wadwa, who sits in the New York Regional Office. He touched on really two big things that I, that I want to highlight, both of which were teasing out some themes from his remarks at last year's SEC Speaks and some of the other speeches that they've given in the meantime. The first thing had to do with the division's current thinking on penalties or philosophy for setting penalties. And what Sanjay really focused on was the deterrent effect of penalties. And he was sort of saying, we are not going to shy away from big penalties because we think it matters. We see when a whole bunch of client alerts come out. We see when you know the, the Wall Street Journal or Reuters or Bloomberg or, or whomever picks up the story. And for us on the staff, we're like, this is great. It's going to encourage people <laughs> to get to, you know, get their house clean. He said mm -hmm. last year at Speaks, we talked a lot about proactive compliance. I'm going to yeah. say it again. We expect it. We <laughs> expect companies to get it right in advance. And if you don't, your penalty is going to be bigger. We're going to do things like sometimes require an admission of guilt, which is, I have to tell you, is a big deal. They, they keep talking about it. We, we haven't seen maybe as much as yeah. people feared, but that's a big deal. He said, we're going to do things like require defendants to take steps to resolve issues at the company. If there are compliance failures, they're going to have to do it. And we are going to say in our press release what it is that they had to do because people are paying attention and we think it's important. And he said, because it provides a roadmap for others in the industry. So he kind of came out hard charging again on the penalties. Yeah. I, I thought it was I thought it was interesting. I don't know. I'll, I'll pause it in case you had reactions to his comments on penalties. 
Well, I just like the way that they structured that discussion because it started out with cooperation is expected. It followed with penalties are going to be harsh and terrible. And then Chief Litigation Counsel Olivia Cho came in and said, oh, by the way, if you want to take this to trial, just so you know, last year we batted 85 percent. On, on favorable jury resolutions for, for these matters, for the SEC. So it was kind of a one, two, three of, you know, know what you're getting yourself into here, because if you don't help us, you're going to get penalized for it. And most likely, if you want to go the distance here, there may, may cause some, some issues for you down the road. Yep, absolutely. Absolutely. So penalties, a big talking point sort of across the the various folks on the staff who spoke on the panel. The other thing that Sanjay Wadwa talked about was the Wells process. Again, I don't want to get too in the weeds. We talked about it last year. Essentially, the Wells process affords individuals or entities who are the subject of an SEC enforcement investigation to submit a, a paper or an argument to the staff before a charging decision decision is made and the staff and the commission must consider it before they make a final decision about whether or not they're going to bring charges against an entity. It's sort of an advocacy piece that a defendant can can lob in to try to change the staff's mind, either about bringing charges at all or the, natures of, the nature of the charges or the amount of a penalty. The thing that happened at last year's SEC Speaks that got people talking four months yep. was Dr. Graywall and, and Sanjay Wadwa said, look, we're not always going to take Wells meetings, right? So a Wells meeting is when you sit down and talk about your advocacy piece and see if you can you know, sort out your differences. We're not always going to take them. Generally, it has been the practice and it is expected that you can get a meeting with the director. You know, if you go through the Wells mm-hmm. process, you can get a meeting. They said last year, we're not always going to take them. We don't always think it's a good use of our time. Sometimes you can get to the deputy. Sometimes, you know, a, a, an associate director is as high as it needs to go. He doubled down on that this yeah, year. <laughs> he doubled down on it. It was it was a little bit amazing. He said, look, if we don't think it's a good use of time or resources, we're not going to do it. We bring a lot of cases. We can't do it every time. He, he said, but let me be clear. We do still take the meetings yeah. in appropriate cases. And this is what I thought was, uh, was particularly interesting. He said, over the last year, we have walked away from cases after Wells meetings. Mm-hmm. So we will take the ma- meeting and guess what? We are going to listen to you. Yeah. Uh, so I, I don't know. I thought it was really interesting in, in two respects. One that he that he said again, we're just not going to take them if we don't want to. But also that he said, look, if you're an effective advocate, you can win. Yeah. So I thought that was interesting. I don't know about you, Chris. Yeah, it kind of falls into that eighty twenty rule, right? I'm, I imagine that the requests for Wells meetings are are through the roof, and eighty percent of them are, are without merit or, or aren't necessary. But it's that that final twenty percent that maybe take up you know, a significant amount of time that are really valuable, both for the commission and for the issuers or whomever's under their oversight for, for those specific issues. So kind of a little bit of a doom and gloom up front, but, yeah, you yeah. know, maybe a, a shining light at the end of the tunnel for some. Yeah, absolutely. You know, a couple other things I think that jumped out are, again, relating to crypto. <laughs> One was yeah. Olivia Cho, who you mentioned, you, you know, she said, look, from a litigation perspective, the staff isn't going to shy away from trying cases in the crypto space. Mm-hmm. Said, look, we are willing to go to trial, you know, in appropriate cases because we think it's important. We think it's part of our investor protection mandate. 
and we will not shy away from it. Right after Olivia was the the new head of the crypto unit at the uh, at the SEC within the Division of Enforcement, and he highlighted a few things. One, he talked about how registration is extremely important, and they mm-hmm. are going to be looking for platforms or exchanges out there where digital assets trade. And if the SEC thinks they ought to be registered exchanges and they're not, enforcement is prepared to step in. He, he thinks this is particularly important because when you become a registered exchange, there are certain disclosure obligations that that fall on the entity. And he's saying, look, this is only fair for the market. It's fair you know, for, for people to understand what's going on. He also talked about trading in the secondary markets and how they need to be able to hold accountable people who are participating in those markets. And so the SEC enforcement staff is going to be looking into that as well. You know, the most interesting part, I think, of of that section of the enforcement panel was when former SEC Commissioner Dan Gallagher had an opportunity to ask a couple questions. And he sort of said, look, I, I know that that we're all kind of figuring this out a little bit together. And that, you know, Gabir Graywell said a few minutes ago that he is kind of getting this pushback from the crypto community that, that, that sounds like just leave us alone. What he was saying is, we know that you're trying to do it the right way, or, or we think you're trying to do the right way, and it's hard, but do it faster. Yeah. It's a huge thing for people in the industry, for people in the defense bar. We're pouring over every enforcement action, every speech, every little piece of guidance that dribbles out because there are a lot of a lot of people, a lot of entities, a lot of operators and platforms in this space that are trying to do it in a compliant way. So do it faster. Help us figure it out. And when you say us, for those who don't know, former Commissioner Gallagher is now the general counsel of a, a small crypto-related entity, although that's not their whole business, called Robinhood. So it was almost, you know, seeing, uh, you know, both sides of the coin up on the stage, I thought made for a great discussion. And and I was hoping you'd bring that up, Curtis, kind of the, a little bit of a, a snickering back and forth between those being regulated and those doing the regulation. Yeah, you know, it was interesting because it, Director Graywall j- ha- jumped in to respond, yeah. you know, to to his credit. <laughs> and he said, look... We hear you. We are trying to be more intentional in the way that we write press releases, in the way that we word things in charging documents so that you can see our analysis. When we bring a case against a token or an issuer because we think it's a security or a sale of securities, we're trying to be more thoughtful about how we describe it so that the market can react, so that they can understand our analysis. He said, but, and I love it because you know you get this line a couple times every SEC speaks, feel free free to come in and talk to us about it. Exactly. We would welcome a dialogue. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I got one more thing on the, yeah. on the enforcement panel. I think, I, I think two, I can't, I can't help myself, Chris. My, mm-hmm. my notes are, are very long. One was we heard from the new head of the SEC's office of the whistleblower. The, the program is still just going gangbusters. Mm-hmm. I think she said they have now approved awards of $226 million in this <laughs> fiscal year, which yeah. is the second highest year ever. I mean, it's crazy. We'll get all the details about that in a few weeks when the SEC whistleblower report comes out. But just really interesting to hear that top line figure. It it kind of proves, I think we can sense it. There have been little waves of whistleblower actions Mm -hmm. announced or whistleblower awards announced over the last, over the last several months. But I think, I think they are really busy. So that's interesting. But then the, the last speaker on the panel essentially hit what what he was saying are some of the priority areas for the SEC going forward, maybe over the next year until we hear from them again. Um, 
very first thing, do you remember what his number one on the list was? You're going to have to hit me, Kurt. I was still reeling from the accounting discussion the day before. It's something we've talked about before on the podcast. Reg B.I. Reg B.I. Oh, right. Come on. Come on. <laughs> Wait, what do you know about that? Do you, do you care at all about that? Know. We go back to 42 episodes so That's far. Right. So, so the number one thing on the list, and I'm not saying this is their top priority, but the first mm. thing that they mentioned was, was Reg B.I. I think many of us are expecting to see more action in that space. This probably solidifies that view yeah. if, if you didn't already share it. So that was that was one. Number two, Chris, accounting fraud. Mm-hmm. It's the other still thing that they're there, keeping their eye on. Yep. Still a focus. They mentioned ESG as something they're going to continue to look at. The ESG task force, of course, is still out there doing its work. They mentioned offering frauds. They mentioned crowdfunding, actually, which I think mm-hmm. is interesting. I don't know if we should expect more in that space or not. But those were some of the priorities that that they flagged towards the end of the panel. You know, overall, I think it was an interesting panel discussion. There were some some really good nuggets in there yeah. if you were paying attention, and, and hopefully, we tease some of those out for the listeners. Excellent. Well, Kurt, I think everyone in attendance, as well as you and I, felt that this was a great conference. It was great to share a beverage with you personally, as well as with many of our colleagues. And I know that for anybody who missed it or want to go back and, and kind of review some of the more interesting points that we brought up today, obviously, as we've talked about a couple of times here, pli.edu for all those privileged members out there, you have the ability to access this and see an on-demand content and any other questions or things like that, feel free to write them into us. We're happy to give Absolutely. you a little bit more take on, on the conference. And, you know, I don't think, do we have, yeah, we had a bit of snacks and we talked about looking forward to the snacks a couple <laughs> weeks ago. So I did. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We, we indulged a little bit, but all was well there. Yeah. And of course, you know, PLI has some more good securities related content coming up in just a few weeks. They will have the 54th annual Institute on Securities Regulation. You can attend in person if you're in New York. I would highly recommend it. It's a it's a great it's a great conference, but it's also, as we've said, just good to be back in person. That one's webcast as well. If you want to do it, that's November 2nd through the 4th. Learn more at PLI.edu, of course. But Chris, I loved this one, man. It was really good to spend some time. I enjoyed the conference and it's been fun talking about it. You got it. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Insecurities Podcast. As always, we want to hear from you regarding your thoughts, comments, and topics for discussion on future episodes of Insecurities. Please use the hashtag Insecurities Pod on Twitter or LinkedIn to join the conversation. You can find me at Ekimoff CPA. And I'm at Enforce underscore Update. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review the Insecurities Podcast wherever you listen. Be well, everyone, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for listening to Insecurities, a podcast from PLI, the Practicing Law Institute. PLI is a nonprofit provider of authoritative professional services training and continuing education. In an increasingly complex business environment where intricate corporate structures reign, insecurities can help you make sense of it all. A special thanks goes to the producer of insecurities, Daniel Pinitz, as well as hosts Chris Ekimoff and Kurt Wolf. For more information about PLI's SEC Institute, or to view hundreds of hours of fresh and relevant on-demand programming covering changes within the security sector, visit pli.edu membership.
and sign up for a privileged membership. These recorded materials are designed for educational purposes only. This podcast does not constitute legal, audit, tax, consulting, business, financial, investment, or other professional advice, and it does not create an attorney-client relationship. Please consult a qualified professional advisor before taking any action based on the information herein. Furthermore, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individual participants. These views are not the views of the hosts or their employers. Users of this podcast may save and use the podcast only for personal or other non-commercial educational purposes. No other use, including without limitation, reproduction, retransmission, or editing of this podcast may be made without the prior written permission from PLI.